Thanks for listening to the Faith Church Podcast. We are one church at five locations, streaming online every Sunday morning at live.faithishere.org. We hope that you're challenged and encouraged by today's message. And if you'd like to watch or listen to previous messages, or if you'd like to learn more about who we are as a church and how you can stay connected, head over to faithishere.org. Take your Bibles out. Turn to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. Hope you came hungry for the Word of God, ready to receive what the Lord has for us today. Now, in Mark 16, 15 is one of the two recordings of the Great Commission. Uh, it tells us in Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations. It simply says in Mark's gospel, he puts it this way. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. The word gospel means good news to all creation. That's what we're called to do. No ifs, ands, or buts. That's our assignment. That's our job. That's our mission. That's what God wants his church to do. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every single creature. Now, if the gospel means good news, it kind of begs the question, why doesn't everybody respond? Why doesn't everybody come into the kingdom of God? And it's an amazing, exciting gospel that Christ can take your life, turn you around, and change you and set you free. And there are some things I think that we do that hinder the message or the gospel from going out. We talked about one last week, temple problems. We heard the story about Jesus going into the temple and he, and he takes the whip and he turns over the tables of the money changers. He takes the whip and he drives them out of there. And, and he says, here's the problem. You have made my house, this temple, a den of thieves. They thought it was only for those who were inside of Jerusalem. And so God-fearing Gentiles, Jews who had journeyed from afar, they made it very hard for them to worship the Lord. And the temple is all about a place of prayer and a place of worship. And if they couldn't do that, they were defeating the purpose for which the temple was created. Now here's the bottom line. We can look at them and say, boy, how they blew it back then. They were a really bad group of guys. The bottom line is we are the temple of the Lord. God dwells in us. So so it begs the question, are we doing anything in our lives that might be hindering others from coming to know Jesus Christ? Does the Lord have to come in and cleanse us out and make sure there are those things in our lives that aren't a distraction for what it means to be a child of God? And then have we rediscovered our purpose because he went on to say, my house should be called a house of prayer for all nations. Do we understand that God has a mission for us and that's to discover our purpose to take the gospel to all nations? What stops the gospel? Today we're getting a little more specific. We're going to look at a very specific thing that I think stops many people from sharing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us stand together as we look at God's word this morning. Matthew 10 and verse number 16. I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore be shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard against men. They will hand you over to local councils and flog you in the synagogues. On my account, they will be brought before governors and kings and witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. And when they arrest you, do not worry about what you should say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say. For it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of the Father speaking through you. Brother will be taken brother to death. Father is child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me, but who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. 
I tell you the truth, you will not finish going through all the city of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the student to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more will the members of his own household? Father, we thank you, God, that your word is quick and powerful this morning. I pray, God, that it would do its tended work in each and every single one of us, that you will examine your church this morning, that you will open up the word of God to us, that we'll receive and not just be hearers of the word, but doers also. Help me as I preach your word. I need your help. We ask it in your holy, mighty name. Amen and amen. God bless you. You may be seated. How many risk takers in the house? How many would call yourself a risk taker? Let me see your hand. You are by nature kind of living on the edge. You'd be a terrible gambler because you'd lose everything. How many risk takers are out there? Just get it, okay. A few of you, yeah, several, a bunch of you out there. Uh, before you're too quick to raise your hand, I, I, I got online yesterday and I Googled something. I Googled the 10 most dangerous sports. You think you would take a risk, Take a look at some of these, and then we'll see really if we are risk takers or not. Go ahead and play it for us. again how many are really risk takers out there <laughs> yeah how, how many had at least three of these let me see you did wow you guys are amazing you're a base jumper right you jump off of buildings oh five wow i i only had two of those that i've done and really one's not that risky scuba diving i think anybody can do that once you go through the classes and learn how to do it whitewater rafting is really cool if you guys haven't done that you get the rush went to the upper gauley river in west virginia and the, the biggest drop was about a 12 foot drop and they hadn't, you know, usually they say right or left. So the right side's rowing or the left side's rowing. You got a guide on the back. And when we got to this big drop, which you had to sign a release to go over, they said, just simply get down in the bottom and hang on because you will go in the water and you will be shot back out. So that was pretty cool, uh, quite an adrenaline. But risk, risk taking. 
I, I, I'm a little risky in some of my behavior. In, in the area of finances, I've taken some risk. And I've gotten the stock market. Somebody told me this is a sure thing. How many have heard that before? It's bound to go up, bound to win, buy it now. And, it only pl- and as soon as I buy it, it's going to plummet and go the other direction. I mean, I mean we lost money in, in stocks and all that. And then there's been those times when there was a sure thing and I didn't buy it because of fear. And I said, nah, it's, don't want to invest that. Don't want to go that direction. Don't want to do that. And, and, then, and then what I don't buy just skyrockets, goes right up through the roof. So I'm not very good at taking risk. They took a survey of 100 people over 65 years of age. And they asked them this question, what would you do if you could go back and do it all over again? And 95 out of 100 said, I would take more risk. Kind of interesting, isn't it? You say, Pastor, why are you sharing all this? Let me tell you something. The kingdom of God is an invitation to take risk. If you are going to be a part of the kingdom of God, you're going to answer that call to be his disciple, to follow him, to do whatever he asks us to do. Inherent in that is taking risk along the way. And he's going to take this time and warn his disciple about a lot of the risk to come in the scripture I just read to you. You see, we've heard so much about the gospel message being a place of safety and prosperity and goodness and joy and all those kind of things, but very rarely do we hear about all the risk inherent with the gospel. In fact, you read chapter 10 to some people and say, I don't want any of that. That's not what I'm looking for. We can know so much about the gospel message and it can be all in our brains, all in our minds, and yet... It's not just about knowing the gospel. It is about going with the Lord on a mission. And so when he calls us, he sends us out. And every single believer, every single child of God is inherently called to go on a mission. And the mission is the same one I share with you. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every single creature. And when we take that seriously and we do it and we put it into action, there will be inherent risk along the way. Because not everybody's going to like our message. They're not going to want to hear it. They're not going to want to see you. They will talk about you. They will disown you. They will mock you. They will make fun of you. We are on a mission. But simply saying stay, staying safe, just holding on, just trying not to mess up, it's kind of like the guy who buried his talents. And he said, I'm not going to use this. I'm going to hide it because I was afraid of my master. But implicit in that is we will not also hear our master say, well done, thou good and faithful servants. There are risks involved in being a part of the kingdom of God. Let's take a look at chapter 10. I want to go back to verse number 1. It opens with this call to his apostles. And he's going to kind of break it down for you. By the, they've already been following him for some time, but and it takes chapter 10 before Matthew kind of identifies them and talks about them. And so it says in verse 10, And he called his 12 disciples to him, and he gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to hell every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. And then he begins to name them one by one. And then you get down to verse five. And the 12, Jesus sent out with the following instructions. So I want you to notice, first of all, the call of God. First of all, we are always called first to him. He says he called his disciples, he called his followers to him. And if we are going to be a part of God's kingdom, a a follower of Christ, we are first called to him. But what happens is when we get close to him, when we spend time with him, when we know him in that way, something begins to happen. Our heart begins to beat like his heart. And the Bible says in the previous chapter, and God was moved with compassion when he saw the sheep as sheep without a shepherd. 
And right on the heels of that, he sends out his disciples, his apostles, and he says, I want you to go. Called to him. And then the second calling is he sends them out. And so he says, first come to me, then we come to him and learn of me, and then he sends us out. In fact, the word apostle means sent one. It was used by the Greeks to represent an ambassador or representative for the king. In other words, this ambassador, this representative had all the authority of the king. And so when they sent their ambassadors out, they took the authority of the king with them. And that's the exact same way that we are sent. And he will tell his apostles, I'm giving you that same kind of authority. You'll cast out demons in my name. In my name, the sick will be held. In my name, you'll preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. In my name, you will do amazing things because we have the authority of Jesus Christ. We're called to him and then we're sent out by him. But in sending us out, he says there are going to be risks along the way. He says our safety is not promised. Our safety is not promised. Just like the disciples were called and sent, everybody who answers the call to follow Jesus Christ. You're sitting here today, you say, Pastor, I want to become a Christ follower. I want to give my life to Jesus Christ. Implicit in that call is that you will also accept his mission. You become not just a part of a family, a family of God, but the Bible also describes us as soldiers in the army of the kingdom of God who are sent out on a mission. We are all sent on that mission. Go ye into all the world includes every single one of us. The Great Commission was not just for the super spiritual Christian who we say has the gift of evangelism. It wasn't for just pastors or the clergy or the hired guns. It wasn't for the missionaries who travel through here and answer the call to go to Africa or India or wherever God calls them to go. It's not just for those select few. I want to tell you, every one of us, when we're called to follow Christ, are also sent by him into our neck of the woods. We're sent to be his witnesses wherever he wants us to go. This is one of the reasons Faith Assembly of God is here. We're here to help you discover and find your place of ministry, your, your purpose in life, so that you can, as a child of God, make a difference. Isn't that what God wants us to do, make a difference wherever we at? And that will mean taking a risk. Now look at verse number 16 again. I read it to you earlier. And when you, we've read this before, we've seen it before, but we just kind of gloss over it. But I want you to think about it for a moment. I am sending you out as lambs or sheep among wolves. Now, if you're taking odds on that encounter, put your money on the wolves. I mean, they're ferocious. They will tear those lambs up. They will tear them to shreds, chew them up. They are wolf food. They will be eaten and the bones spit out. I'm It's ridiculous. I'm sending you like lambs among wolves. Who's going to say, I'm signing up for that? Sure, I want to go get killed. I want to die. Include me in that. Jesus is clearly stating not all will respond to the good news. In fact, you will even face trials and persecution and tests along the way. And then he begins to spell out where all these tests are going to come from. And so he says in verse number 18, look look at that verse again, where this testing is going to come from. He says, on my account... You will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. And so some of the wolves might be the government. In fact, we know from the early church history, the Roman government was very anti-Christian. 
In fact, they hated the Christians so bad, and the, the major persecution started under Emperor Nero, and then it, there was 10 succeeding emperors, and for the next 300 years, the believers, the church, was persecuted beyond imagination. They would take them, and they would put them on stakes, and they would set them on fire and watch them burn alive. And it could be set out of the city of Rome, going down the Appian Way, the streets would be lined with human torches. I don't know if we want to sign up for that. They would be thrown into the lion's den and ripped apart, and the, the, the Colosseums would laugh and mock at the early church and the believers as they were tossed to these wild beasts and animals. They, they would be hung on crosses and crucified, which was a very common form of execution. Peter himself crucified upside down. They would take them and they would chop off their heads, as was the case of the apostle Paul, and his head was laid on a chopping block. The sword axe comes down and his head rolls off. Roman government. And yet, we kind of forget that in our lifetime, there are more martyrs every single day around the world than at any other time in history, even including the first century. In radical Islamic states, there are still believers when they are baptized in water that is owned by their family. They can be thrown in prison. They can even be killed for the gospel of Jesus Christ persecution all around the world. used to be just behind government countries. Now it is all throughout North Africa, all throughout the Middle East, all throughout the islands. Believers are being killed every day for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Homes are being bombed. Churches are being bombed. We don't hear about it a lot because we're kind of insulated over here. But every day, believers are laying down their life for the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The other thing I, I want us to be cognizant of today is that I think, I think we're, gonna, we're seeing a day, even in our generation, where it's getting worse in America. The ACLU will defend everybody's right to free speech, to picket, to parade, to do obscene things in the middle of our streets, to do whatever they want to do. But if a Christian is not allowed to speak up or raise his voice because it might be taken as hate speech or bigotry or whatever else slant they want to put on any of that kind of speech, Christian takes a stand for righteousness and the truth. He is threatened with lawsuits, losing tax-exempt status as a church, being sued, whatever the case may be. And I will tell you, the further and further we get away from our Judeo-Christian values, we will see persecution, I believe, in these last days intensify. And the question is, are we going to still stand for the Lord Jesus Christ? He said persecution can come from your government. It also comes, the Bible says, from an unlikely source. It can come from religious people. Look at verse number 17. Be on your guard against men. They will hand you over to local councils and flog you in their synagogues. They will beat you in the churches. Religious leaders were taking believers, and the earliest persecution came from the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They are the ones whom Uh, Peter hangs the blood of Jesus Christ on. He says, you killed the Lord of glory when he talked to the religious leaders. Religious people. They'll speak out against you. You Let me tell you what the predominant religion in America is today. It's not necessarily Christianity. It's universalism. They might not identify themselves as that, but when you look at their thought process, it's universalism. Somehow, people believe everybody, no matter what they believe, is going to heaven. As long as you're a good guy, as long as you're a nice person, somehow everybody's going to get up there. But when we begin to declare the word of God that says in John 14, I am the way, 
I am the truth, I am the life, no man comes to the Father but by me. We are seen as very narrow-minded, we are seen as, it's, it's, it's objectionable. They don't like that part of the gospel. They don't like that exclusivity. They don't like any part that says there's only one way to God. So the religious will say you're just narrow-minded. It's offensive to stand for something rather than go along with the, the latest social trends and fads that are passing our way. And by all means, we must always remain politically correct. It's even offensive to love in this world today that is choosing to hate and choosing anger and choosing prejudice. And it seems like we're divided along prejudicial lines. Uh, and it's in those moments that the church needs to rise up and say, listen, there is a better way. It is the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God loves all people. When you burn with a zeal for God, it's the religious who will say, don't be so fanatical, don't rock the boat. You're out of touch with reality, you're just plumb nuts. And then, a very unlikely source is your own family. Look if you were at verse number uh, 22. It says there, uh, all men, uh, oh, verse 21. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father is child, and children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. He says the third persecution can even come from your own family. Brother against brother, father against mother, uh, children against their parents. They will betray you. There will even come a day when your brother will turn you into the officials to be executed. I think the hardest thing is when those close to us turn on us. When those we love or purport to love us talk about us and mock us and, and turn away and make fun of us. If you become faithful in church attendance and you start getting up every Sunday morning, you may have lived with that unsaved man and you say, you know what, I've given my life to Christ. I'm going to church today. He's going to look and say, what, are you nuts? This is relax day. This is golf day. Sleep in with me. Don't leave. When you begin to serve in the church and say, you know what, I want to get involved in this group or this ministry. I want to reach out. I want to touch people. I want to begin to make a difference. They will, they will mock you every step of the way. When you begin to say, I'm going to start tithing and trusting God with my finances, and you write that first 10% check, they will look at you that you have plumb lost your mind. What are you doing tithing and giving all that money away? Because they don't understand spiritual concepts or spiritual principles, and you will be made fun of as a religious fanatic, and it will happen even among those in your own house. And then what will happen is, and here's what happens, those who are close to you, at some point along the line, you will fall and stumble. You will blow it because we all make mistakes. We all fail. We all say stupid stuff that we'd love to take back. But as soon as you do that, what's the words you're going to hear? And you call yourself a Christian. You say you're a Christian and look what you just did. Look how you just acted. Look at what you just said. And they will hang that before you as their justification for their objection to what you are doing, that you call yourself a Christian. I want to tell you, though all may turn against you, the government, I don't care what the government says, uh, though your friends out there, though the religious people might come against you, though your own family, I want to challenge you, hold on to Jesus, never ever let go. It's worth it. Your safety is not promised. The Lord never said the going's going to be easy. He never said the Christian life is going to be the easy life. Somewhere along the line, we have gravitated towards a humanistic gospel. 
that believes nothing bad will ever happen to us. That the moment I say, Jesus, come into my life, everything good and wonderful is going to always happen to me. That there'll be no more trials or tests, be no more sickness or pain, be no more heartache, be no more obstacles, be no more challenges, be no more mountains. I want to tell you, ask the apostles how they did. Eleven were murdered for their faith in Jesus Christ. Excuse me, ten. One hung himself. Ten were murdered for his faith in Jesus Christ, and one died an old man and spent much of his time in a, in a prison camp on the Isle of Patmos. Ask them. Ask Jesus Christ. It's going to be an easy road. Fun and happiness all the time. In fact, he goes on to say in verses 24 and 25, look at these, these two verses. A student is not above his teacher. In other words, if the teacher is going to be persecuted, if they're going to hang him on a cross, if they're going to beat him and whip him, if they're going to reject him, he came to his own and his own received him not, if they're all going to turn against him, how can the, the student expect any better treatment than his teacher? And then he says, a servant is not above his master. If we are servants of the Most High God, how can we claim we're exempt? I'm exempt. I don't expect it to come my way. And he says, if they call Jesus Beelzebub, which literally means the prince of demons, Lord of the flies, it's kind of a demonic term for describing Jesus Christ. They said when he cast out demons, he did it by the power of Beelzebub, by the power of demons. They accused him of being demonic himself. Listen, if they called him a demon, how much more are they going to call us names? And then we get offended and say, oh, not me. I didn't deserve this. I didn't sign up for this. I didn't ask for that. And Jesus is telling them, going out the gate, listen, you are going like lambs among wolves. They're going to chew you up, and I want you to be ready for it. There are risks inherent in being a part of the kingdom of God and doing his message. Now, how do we survive then in the midst of these wolves? He tells us in verse number 16, he says, first of all, be as shrewd as a serpent. It better translated, I think, in the King James, it says, be as wise as a serpent. Now, a serpent had been a symbol of wisdom in some of their uh, thinking in the back. Uh, you see the story all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, when the certain serpent came among Adam and Eve. He was the wise one among all the animals, and he tempted Eve to sin and said, In the day you eat, you shall be like God. The Egyptians worshipped serpents and worshipped snakes. It was a part of their pattern. And you can go back and look at the archaeology of their serpent lore. And it was in that background that the nation of Israel is born. They're born literally in the womb of Egypt as they would spend 400 years there in slavery and in bondage. And so they were around all this. And so he used the analogy, you should be as wise as a serpent. Why are serpents wise to begin with? Well, they know how to protect themselves against predators. They're hard to catch. They're hard to eat and kill and destroy and chew up. And so they know how to hide. They know how to slither away. They know when a predator's in the area. They know how to protect themselves. Listen, if we're going to be as wise as a serpent, we need to know who our enemy is. I will tell you your enemy is out there to kill, steal, and destroy. But I will also tell you this, your enemy is not your next door neighbor. That is not your enemy. Because the Bible says we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness and wickedness and spiritual places. That's who our enemy is. It is the Satan and all his host of demons. That's our real enemy. Now, why is it so important to distinguish that? 
If you are going to face persecution, if you don't understand the person speaking against you or coming against you is not your enemy, you will begin to hate them and be bitter against them, and then you'll never be able to reach them for the kingdom of God. But when you understand your real enemy is that spiritual demonic force behind them, uh, that's who you take your wrath out against, but you love flesh and blood. You love your neighbor. You love your family. You love those who may come against you. You need wisdom to discern how to lead someone to Christ and how to speak the truth and how to discern what the real need inside of a person is. Often what you see on the surface is not the real heart need of their life, but the Holy Spirit will tell you what to say. He'll tell you what to speak. He'll open up your heart. He'll give you that discernment so you know just how to touch where they're hurting and where they're broken and what they're going through. You need to also know when to speak and when to keep your mouth shut. And you need that wisdom as you go out into this world, as you become witnesses for him. Uh, we don't go in and we don't become offensive and we don't barge the door down. I love the analogy in Revelation. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if any man opens the door, I'm going to come into him and I'll sup with him and I'll dine with him. But there's a gentle knocking that goes on. He never forces the door open. He never kicks it down. So be careful in your witness. I, I had the privilege of going to a, a football game recently, and I went to the game, and, and uh, I, I saw a big sign that someone was holding up, and it said, homos are going to hell. Now, to me, that was very offensive. I don't think it's the way to reach our world. I don't think it's the most effective gospel witness. I think, if anything, it hurts the name of the Lord Jesus Christ because God loves everybody and God would that all men would be saved and come to know him. And to hold a sign like that up on the street corner to me was offensive. I don't think that's the way we share the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we need to be as wise as a serpent. We need to know when to speak and when to keep our mouth shut. We need to know what to say and what not to say. We need to know how to let our speech be seasoned with grace. And that kind of leads to the next thought. He says you need to be as wise as a serpent but as harmless as a dove. The dove, gentle, full of grace, full of peace, loving and caring and reaching out. The Bible says a soft answer turns away wrath. We need to be careful that we are forgiving and meek and full of grace in all of our encounters with people who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. Full of grace. Not attempting to win an argument or prove our point or show that we are right. You will win more people with love and grace and mercy than with harshness. Wise as a serpent, harmless as a dove. You say, Pastor, why? Why do I have to do this? It's so risky. You just talk about a ton of bad stuff that may happen to me. It leads me to my second point. My second point is simply this. Our reward is worth the risk. Our reward is worth the risk. Look at again at verse 22. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. I want to tell you, it is worth it. Three times in this chapter, Matthew writes that the Lord said, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. And he gives us several reasons as you go down and look through the rest of this chapter and, and the part I just read to you. And, and the first is simply this. There is nothing in the world that Jesus Christ hasn't already faced. Therefore, I don't have to be afraid. If he's with me, he knows how he feels. He knows every test I will face, every persecution, every trial. It, it, he's went through it first. 
So he understands our weaknesses. He's touched with the feelings of my infirmities. He was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. I have a great, faithful, high priest who will not leave me, who's right there, who knows, he understands, and he's with me every step of the way. Therefore, I don't have to be afraid. He understands our burdens. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to be mocked and cursed and spoken even of and rejected. He knows. But he declares that when we endure and stand for him, he's going to stand for us. Look at verse 32. Jump down a little further. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. In other words, when I speak out for the Lord and I identify with him and I acknowledge him, he says, this is my boy. This is my son. This is my child. This is the one I gave my life for. And he will acknowledge me before his heavenly Father. What a reward. It's also, he says, don't be afraid because of the value he places on your life. Now, this is an amazing thought. I want you to look at verse 29. Verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. It's a part of God's will for that sparrow. And even the very hairs of your head are numbered. I think my numbers change on a periodic basis. (laughs) Verse 31, so don't be afraid. And then here's the clincher. You are worth more than many sparrows. Wow. Now let me tell you about the sparrow. The sparrow was the cheapest sacrifice you could offer. He has the price of it recorded. The sparrow is sold for a penny. And so when you came to the temple to offer a sacrifice for your sin, he wanted to make it possible for even the poor to bring sacrifices to God. And so if you couldn't afford a sheep or a lamb, you could always buy a sparrow for one penny. And they would take that innocent, gentle bird, and they would, they would uh, break its neck, the blood would come down, and the sacrifice would be offered for sins. And he said, that sparrow, that sparrow that's only sold for one penny, he says, you are far more, worth far more than that tiny sparrow. You are the crown of God's creation. And if he sees when a sparrow even falls to the ground, how much more does he love his own children and see every little thing that happens in our life, even to the calculation of the numbers of the hairs of our head. God knows, he sees, that's how valuable we are to God. That's amazing. Now, when you understand your great value to God, you don't have to be afraid. In fact, even when calamity does happen to a child of God, he says that will ultimately be a part of God's master plan for your life. It will be a part of God's will for your life. He says if a sparrow falls, he said that's within the confines of God's will. When we stumble and fall, that's within the confines of God's will. God will lift us up. God will help us. God will bring us through because we are valued by him. I, I thought about the imagery of a sparrow. What would cause a sparrow to fall? Well, it's probably a little baby sparrow just learning how to fly. And maybe he's going to test his wings out and crawl out of that nest, and he doesn't make it the first time, and the wings don't work quite right, and he falls right to the ground. He's telling his disciples, I want you to leave your nest. 
I want you to leave the, the safety of your, of your immediate friends. I want you to go into all the world and take the gospel. And by the way, wolves are going to be out there. But he says, you know what? If I see a sparrow when it falls out of his nest, I'll see you when you're under trial, persecution, testing, whatever you might face. I see and I know what you're going through. Therefore, do not, do not be afraid. And the third reason we ought to be afraid is the reward is so great because some seed, he says, will fall on good ground. In other words, worth it. The reward is worth it. Friend, family member that you're sharing the good news to, that you're loving on, that you're doing acts of kindness for, there's going to come a crisis in their life, a time in their life when they're going to say, hey, tell me about the Jesus you serve. Tell me about the Lord. Tell me more. I want to give my heart and my life to him. And when they give their life to the Lord, you're going to say, it's been worth it all. It's worth it all to see one person come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, a life changed forever, someone that will spend all eternity in heaven with you. It's worth it. We've seen the imagery before and seen the stories about firemen who risk their lives when they go into a blazing, fiery house. And and, in the scene of the mother standing on the curb and says, somebody help my baby, someone save my baby. It's in the third, second floor. It's up there. The baby's in the crib. Get up there. Someone's got to go up there. And, and And the firefighter risks the house falling on top of him. The firefighter risks uh, smoke inhalation. The firefighter uh, risks being burned alive. But when that firefighter comes out and he's holding that baby and puts it in the arms of a crying mother, he thinks to himself once again, it has been worth the risk. And when you see someone come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and accept him and their lives are transformed and old things are passed away, they become a child of the family of God. You're going to say, it was worth the risk. It's worth the risk. I've got to go. I've got to tell somebody about Jesus Christ. Success is always on the other side of risk. I want you to think about this statement. Your greatest obstacle is usually your greatest opportunity. Your greatest obstacle is usually your greatest opportunity. How many people say, I just, I just can't work at my job anymore. Everybody around me is lost and they curse and they're terrible and they, they just say file things. And I've got to get out of this environment. I want to tell you that obstacle is your opportunity. They need Jesus Christ. God has you there for a reason. Mm. That family member who can't stay out of trouble that's always returning to drugs or alcohol or, or, or just destroying their lives and you watch it, you watch it crumble apart, you watch it fall apart, they become the greatest opportunity for the good news of Jesus Christ because their life brings only emptiness and pain and heartache. We've got the good news. Christ can set you free. Mm. Every time you step out and you're paying for the gospel, you are taking steps toward that prize. So you don't have to fear. Don't be afraid. God sees. He is with you. And your labor is not in vain. Hallelujah. I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul is writing the Corinthians. Established the church there. Has believers there. Sends back a couple of letters. This is the... 2 Corinthians, towards the end of his ministry. Look what he had to say in verse number 8. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. 
struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our bodies. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may be revealed in our mortal bodies. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. So through Paul laying down his life, through Paul going through persecution and shipwreck and beatings and everything else, it was that the life of Christ may be born in those Corinthians. And he's saying, it's worth it. It's worth it all. Are people in your life worth the risk? Are they really worth it, those who are around you, your friends and family? What risk can you take today that will change someone's tomorrow? It's worth the risk. It pleases God. It's our divine mission. Do not be afraid. It's worth it. I want you to ask, I want you to ask two questions today. I want to ask you two questions. First of all, who in my life needs Jesus Christ? I want you to think about that today. Who in my life needs to know Jesus Christ? And the second question is, what can I do to show them some way the love of Jesus Christ? Thanks for listening to the Faith Church Podcast. We are one church at five locations, streaming online every Sunday morning at live.faithishere.org. We hope that you're challenged and encouraged by today's message. And if you'd like to watch or listen to previous messages, or if you'd like to learn more about who we are as a church and how you can stay connected, head over to faithishere.org.